Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm with Dr. Matt Messner, the author of Friendship Leadership. Uh, Matt, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Josh. It's great to be able to have this conversation with you and to be on your program today. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for it. Um, let's begin with hopefully an easy question, but it, it may not be such an easy question because you wrote an entire book about it, uh, but it's very foundational. So when you talk about friendship, leadership, what do you have in mind? Yeah, for me, it is a, a paradigm of leadership or a way of seeing people and a uh, a way of thinking as a leader about the people that you're leading. So that's probably the best way I would describe it. So when you hear of friendship leadership, it is to bring the qualities that make for um, friendship into your – making them part of the lens through which you view people, through which you view your organization, and it helps dictate your relationships, your decisions, um, how you feel about the people you're leading, all of those things. Mm-hmm. So I'd say a paradigm of leadership is really what it is. Mm-hmm. What what was it that led you to um, – because obviously in Christian circles, we talk a lot about servant leadership. And there is a big difference between that uh, – there's, there's a difference between a servant and a friend. Uh, what was mm-hmm. it for you that made you begin to say – you know, I don't know that this servant imagery is exactly what we want. Like, it, like obviously, Scripture does use that imagery uh, to some mm-hmm. extent. Uh, when, when did you first start to see this need for friendship and develop this paradigm? Yeah, it was one of those things that I never really put my finger on. It's just something I had experienced Um because I'd always embraced servant leadership as, as extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. I've been taught it. You know, there's, the scriptures are clear of where Jesus points us towards it, and many books have been written on it. So I've I understood servant leadership, but the more I studied leadership, and even the definitions of leadership, you know, most simply, even the definition of leadership is being influenced. I couldn't dismiss the powerful influence that friends had had on my life and when I was really even just kind of judging the influences in my life there was no doubt that the people with whom I'd had friendship were the greatest influencers upon my own life Mm -hmm. and so that was a reality that I came to grips with or I think I even just subconsciously understood Um, but one of those friends really kind of started having conversations with me about this thesis or this theory, particularly as it relates to the example of Christ. So um, out of that then came further conversations and research. Uh, Surprisingly to me, though, there was not much written on this particular Mm -hmm. topic. It's not been developed as a leadership leadership theory. And um, that surprises me because I think once you look at it and see it, it's a very obvious biblical um, way of doing leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you and I sort of connected because I am doing my my doctoral thesis uh, on mm-hmm. friendship leadership, and I was developing that before I knew about your book and before I knew that you had sort of paved the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it really shocked me as well how little there was on – specifically, I'm looking into uh, a pastor's relationship 
with their congregation. And I, mm-hmm. I expected when I started to be overwhelmed with data. Like, I really expected that there would just yeah. be so many, you know, so much out there that I would have to really wade through it all. And there, there wasn't. Um, and now kind of having studied through that, I, I think that there, there's a, probably a tendency of, because oftentimes pastors don't have great friendship relationships mm-hmm. with their congregation so when mm-hmm. a study comes around to ask about it they don't want to participate in the study you get you get that that bias uh factor mm-hmm. that sele- selection factor into it um why why do you think that this like like everything in your book just seems so natural like of course this is how we mm-hmm. should lead of course um mm-hmm. christ has called us to be friends he's called us to love one another uh that is a key element of friendship so why does it seem like we haven't translated that to the area of leadership yeah i mean i think there's a few different reasons um one is hierarchical structures are not they do, they do not uh, create a great culture for friendship development you know, especially when we're going cross stratus, mm-hmm. um, the different layers of of hierarchy, it becomes more difficult for sure. And many churches are organized that way. So there's that, and then of course there is the dual relationship teaching, which most seminary students, Bible college students, if they take any kind of counseling classes, mm-hmm. well, both within Bible college seminaries as well as secular schools, you'll uh, be told not to do that, and um, most pastors have training in counseling at some level, and they've probably been taught that, and told to apply that to their congregations. So some of it, I think, is trained. But then the third factor is also the experience of um, betrayal and hurt, Mm -hmm. um, because with friendship comes risk and emotional vulnerability, and there's a price that you will inevitably pay in these imperfect relationships that we have if you go down that road. So it's easy for people to withdraw into, you know, in the name of um, avoiding, you know, friendships with people in the church, they will find themselves very isolated mm-hmm. as a buffer or as a even a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. So just going back to the servant leadership, have you found that, you know, in, in your book, you don't you don't really... There's like maybe a page, I think, where you sort of critique mm-hmm. uh, servant leadership. But overall, you just sort of offer friendship leadership as an alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, servant leadership has become this de facto way of describing church leadership. And that is regardless of whether or not that leadership actually functions as servant leadership or not. Um, it's it's almost a sacred cow in uh, mm-hmm. some Christian circles to be like, like, like there's just this expectation that Christian leadership is servant leadership. And so we never really well define what servant leadership is. And we never consider that alternate models uh, could be accepted. Do you, do, mm-hmm. Have you, have you found that you receive pushback when you criticize servant leadership? I think it's a new thing for anyone to even consider that it might have its its flaws inherently um, because again it is a biblical paradigm of leadership but I see it as a 
progress. Even as Jesus was leading his disciples, mm-hmm. they went from having that servant kind of master rabbi kind of relationship into that role of friendship late. I mean, that conversation's John 15 and it's near the end of his, his life. And so I see, um, servant roles progressing towards friendship intentionally, but in terms of the criticism of servant um, leadership, I think we just have to really face what we're, what we're saying because I do think it's easy to criticize it once you think about it. Servants, their their motivation is not one of joy or wanting to go the extra mile. I mean, a good servant, yes, they will be obedient. They will do their job. They may do a little bit of extra. But a friend, you know, will not only do what a servant will do, but they will go so far beyond it. And I think the big difference isn't even just the job that they do, but really the motivation and the mm-hmm. feelings they have in their heart as they're doing it, a friend versus a servant. There's, they're very different in how they are motivated. So, And again, servant leadership being taught by people in charge also is a little bit mm-hmm. suspicious. <laughs> right. Yes. You know, if they're... If they're learning to be a servant themselves, that's one thing, and demonstrating and modeling that. If they're telling everyone else to be a servant, that's that's another thing as well. You know, so I do think servant leadership has can be abused as a concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's plenty of spiritual abuse that goes mm-hmm. on in churches, and I think servant leadership may be something that is leveraged in getting people to do what is unreasonable or unrealistic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that one one side of the spectrum can be, and um, I, I, I can think of friends uh, who are, are pastors or were pastors that had this experience in small churches where they were the only staff member, the, the only paid staff. And there yeah. was this, sort of this idea that, hey, you are the one being paid to do ministry. And so everything is on you. If it's inside the church mm-hmm. building, you're the one who's supposed to do it. You know, you preach, you prepare communion, mm-hmm. you take out the trash, you clean the bathrooms. You're the only person on the payroll. So it, it, it and that's where that idea of like, well, you're supposed to be a servant. Do you do you find mm-hmm. that churches can fall into this tendency of emphasizing uh, this the obligation of servanthood? Oh yeah, and I think it, you know I I had one experience where a, a pastor taught their staff to you know not only put in their forty hours a week or whatever they were on the payroll to do, but in addition to that to give their reasonable time of service to the Lord unpaid and that would be you know at least a tithe if not more of their time and you know not to complain about that because that would just be what you're expecting of people in the church already who have other jobs and just all of that in the name of servant leadership you know Mm -hmm. but when you start demanding that um, servants are you know they're subject to the demands of their master, whoever that is, mm-hmm. you know, in, in ideal servant leadership, we are serving the Lord and we're serving, you know, one of the ways we serve the Lord is to serve people. But, um, 
sometimes people will take advantage of that. And I think that's a real caution. When you encounter somebody who is a real servant, you know, and really embrace the servant leadership fully is to be cautious not to take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can re- I respect that in people, those that heart and that attitude to serve others. But when you really encounter, meet a person who has that gift and, and really will do that, you have to kind of guard that sacred trust that they're giving you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, the, the other side of that is I think that servant leadership can sometimes be used as a term that shields an abusive pastor uh, from, from abuse because you can have these really hierarchical systems but then like well he's a servant leader he's serving you like like the the name is invoked but the name is invoked just to cloak this very high power hierarchical uh mm-hmm. structure that it's not it's not servant leadership at all um it, it's just a, a way of of um being like, well, you can't criticize servant leadership. And so mm-hmm. he's a servant leader. Um, so we kind of have this from, from both sides where this term is used, um, whether it's used correctly or, or incorrectly, but it, but in both cases, yeah. in both cases, yeah. the, the end result is that one side is not really engaging in relationship with the other. Either the leader is not engaging in relationship with the rest of the community or the community is not engaging in a relationship with the person that they designated to be their leader. Uh, and in both of those instances, I think it leads to different kinds of dysfunction, but it definitely does lead to dysfunction. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And, and nobody wants, you know, when they think of what they want to do, like to be a slave or to be a servant in terms of hierarchy is really the, the lowest position. Um, and so I think it's important to, as an individual to say, you know what, there is nothing that I would ask someone to do that I wouldn't be willing to do. There's nothing that I'm unwilling to do when it comes to nitty-gritty, hard work, serving other people, washing other people's feet. Um, but at the same time to realize that no one is going to aspire towards you know, slavery. <laughs> like, right, yeah. And the, just again, the Lord may call us to that, but we don't, we can never demand that of others. You know, we can disciple people towards embracing humility and the heart to lift other people up and to meet other people's needs, you know, but to do it with a, a cheerful, good heart. But yeah, the, the line between somebody taking advantage of that um, those can get blurred very easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one one of the things that that I've noticed in my research in this area uh, is is that a lot of pastors struggle to connect relationally with their congregation for you because of this reason, and because sometimes it's denominational expectations. There are some denominations that are I, I there, there there's no one that's that's comes right out and says hey don't be friends with your congregants yeah um but you see it very heavily implied in the structure of the church 
um, in the way that pastoral placements are given uh, in some in, in some other areas. Sometimes it's congregational expectations, just because that's what they've they've had or, or known, or they're really just looking for the someone to come in and and do ministry that they're paying. Uh, sometimes it's the pastoral expectations. This is what they were taught in in seminary. Uh, there seems to be this contention of Christianity that sees the pastor as the shepherd, and that means that they can't be part of the community of sheep. Uh, mm-hmm. So when we, when we build that, like like if you were to say, well, of course the the shepherd, you know, the, the shepherd can't get down on all fours. He's not a sheep. When we how do we maintain i guess there's a there's this idea of like the the leader has some authority uh but that authority mm-hmm. has to separate them from the community how do we bring that in and say okay we're going to retain the authority but also be a part mm-hmm. of the community yeah i mean i think i think a lot of that authority when we try to retain our authority we're missing something already um, Jesus d- divested himself of much of his deity when he, you know, became man. That's incarnational ministry is is letting go of those things and laying down those things. Um, but without a doubt, the clergy laity gap is a real thing, and that is has been enforced for you know throughout church history, and it is something I think we have to fight against this cler- clergy laity gap or divide um which where yeah people have been trained that you cannot be friends with your congregants i mean i i've had people specifically say that you cannot have friends in the mm-hmm. church or for different reasons i've had pastors tell me if i do that i'll lose my mystique i'll lose my authority basically if i if people see me the way i really am mm-hmm. um but yeah, it's that whole phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, but I heard somebody else say familiarity breeds contempt only for the contemptible. Mm. So when you really think about the, when you have become familiar with someone, there are some people you've grown in your respect. You've deepened your love for them. You've, you've, they have more authority the closer you've gotten to them. And those are people of character. Those are people of authenticity. Those are people of depth. Um, it is true if you're talking about a superficiality or a, maybe a toxic form of leadership or you start seeing a lot of dysfunction, then familiarity can breed some contempt. But I think those are things you gotta, we all have to work on. You know, we have to work on our weaknesses. We want to be authentic. We want to be true and be real. Um, but I think because of these hierarchical, ecclesiastical expectations. Pastors end up extremely isolated, and that's a very unhealthy place to be as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just mental health, spiritual health, social health, all of those things are compromised when a pastor is very isolated. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so far in my study of that, no, like there, there's no one who is connected the two there there are studies that have been done that have said hey pastors are really isolated uh they really seem to like lack a social support mm-hmm. uh and then there there are authors uh such as you 
and a few others uh, who have criticized servant leadership and said this could lead like poor formulations of this uh, could lead to this lack of social social support. And uh, no one that I've seen has really sort of brought those two together yet. Um, But you can easily see how the church, the church is intended to be the primary community for the Christian. Yeah. And if you are saying, if you are, if you are saying friendship leadership of leaders can't be friends with the community, you are leaving out you're leaving this person out of the community and right. where, where are they, you know, where are they supposed to, to go? Um, yeah. they're, you know, and a lot of people, well, you have to have really strong pastor friends is, is a yeah. big answer that I, that I've gotten. Um, but I also feel like if, if you're, if you're clergy and all of your friends are also clergy, that, that really puts you into quite a bubble of, um, yeah. you're, you don't know what your community thinks or feels or be- even believes. Um, you you can't help them. Um, you can't be the shepherd mm-hmm. that you need to be because you don't know the sheep because they're not um, you're not friends with them. Uh, so that that's, that's 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 such a like we we see that, and I think this is true in like a lot of caring industries. Like who cares for the cares? Uh, mm-hmm. That we see this in in nursing, uh, we see this in, yeah. counsel, in counseling, um, in in pastors sometimes aren't really thought of 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 being a part of that, but they they really are. Um, that you are distancing them from the community that should be closest to them, and uh, yeah. that's a you know that that's a really that's a really difficult thing. Yeah, and I think the example and the person who I talk about in in my book and who also pointed me in the direction of friendship leadership was a man named Jerry Cook. And Jerry wrote a book called Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness. And um, we just talked a lot about this topic, even as I was beginning to formulate the thesis. But he had been the pastor of a very large church, a very successful ministry, Things were going like gangbusters, but at the, in his mid-40s, he had a severe heart attack, and he had uh, a mental breakdown as well, just emotionally exhausted and burned out. And at that point, um, his role as the pastor of that particular church ceased, and he had to get well, and he had to regroup. And one of the things that he identified in his life was that lack of friendship, and he made a commitment coming out of that that he would never live without friendship again, no matter what role he was in in church or in, in leadership. And and he retained a great deal of influence as a, a writer, as a teacher, and as a pastor. And we were on staff together at the same church. Um, not He wasn't the lead pastor, neither was I, but we were staff members. And he was semi-retired, but he um, started taking me fly fishing. And we started camping and fly fishing and time flies and building rods. And I would go with him and one of his friends, who was a a, a man who literally lived in his van, who was a construction worker and a fly fisherman, too, and a Christian. 
And uh, I just was able to see and experience friendship at that level and to see it lived out um, in a way that I thought was um, was tremendous and a big contrast to much of what I saw around me in terms of other leaders and other pastors. But it helped really solidify what I believed to be true and what I vowed personally to pursue as a value. Again, not just based on experience, but also then, again, we know we can look at John 15 and just the biblical precedent in the admonition from Jesus to, you know, to not just follow in his footsteps, but to love in the same way that he's loved us. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. So if we're going to follow in that, can we not, should we not view people as friends as well? I think there's also this sense that like the people that you spend a lot of time with, if you're going to create meaningful community, then they're going to become your friends. And mm-hmm. this this really requires a a church wide, a congregation wide, or if you're you know, if you're in a different industry, a company wide change in in how mm-hmm. the community of the church, the business, whatever it is, on how it's structured. Um, speaking specifically to churches, you know, if if your experience with that community is an hour on Sunday, then right. you're not going to build the kind of community in which friendship leadership can um, can blossom. It's not going to grow that that well because mm-hmm. you're not you're not what you're what you're getting in that in that one hour uh, you're you're not even really able to become friends with the people in the next pew, let alone the person who is, uh, you know, leading leading the service or leading worship or in, in some leadership capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it requires a level of commitment that's deeper than a lot of your average churchgoers are willing to give it. You know, servanthood goes one way, and and pastors. You can take on this role and, and, hey, we're getting paid for it. This is, you know, it, it, it becomes a, mm-hmm. a profession in that way. But friendship because this two-way street. So it only works when both sides are willing to engage in this community. Um, how – so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of build a theoretical, like, scenario for you, and then you can tell me how you would deal with it. If So if, if you were a pastor at a church and you became convinced that friendship leadership is the way in which you should begin to lead, uh, but you, 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 you've been a part of an established congregation and you haven't been, how would you begin to communicate to that congregation, all right, we need to change some things around here? I mean, Jesus said that the world's going to know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And so the value of community must be emphasized. You know, even besides friendship, there has to be a network of deep relationships and community building within the body of Christ itself. It's each part doing its part and us being interconnected and interdependent. And so I... That's what comes to my mind immediately is, we, you know, we've got to build community. If all we are is a big show or an event kind of focused church, which churches have done that. You know, you can gather crowds, but are you discipling people? 
-hmm. If there is no relationship, if there is no community, in what way is God really being glorified? Is our love being manifest, our relationships being deepened? And so for me, it would go then to saying, you know, even if it is a large church that's been highly um, event-driven, not a lot of relational connection or fabric, you've just got to, would then have to begin to shift that and say, you know, how can we give people the space and the room to build relationships as we elevate that value, the value of friendship, the value of community, the value of interconnectedness. And so that's where small groups come in, definitely in terms of programming or strategically doing things where people then could build that community. And so for us in the church that I pastor, we try to do that. We believe the weekend services are really important, but we have three or four services a weekend and people might not see the same people twice. So we have to have other events where we can build community, where people can hang out, where people can spend time together. And then we have to emphasize small groups so people can become a part of their lives and deepen those relationships. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the responsibility of the people in charge of any congregation to create a strategic fabric where (laughs) relationships could be built deepened. There could be true accountability. There could be the sharing of the gifts and the sharing of life and the nurturing of friendship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This like idea of, of, of friendship leadership, it, it limits it limits the size of following that the leader can have directly, because you know in in sociology it's Dunbar's number. There's only there's a certain amount of there's a certain amount of meaningful relationships that one person can have. Um, so in like in a larger church context, um, I, I, you may have just already answered that just by talking about small groups. But is there a way that you would try to develop that, or, or do you do you see a way in which we need to think of church differently based on mm-hmm. based on that? Yeah, and then I think that's where we have to look at what's realistic and what was the model that Jesus presented us because he uh, obviously loved the entire world, I, I believe, equally. And so you have his complete, equal, infinite love for all of humankind, but then being very strategic because of the limitations of mm-hmm. being a person uh, in terms of how many relationships you can sustain that are like that. So I think as leaders, we have to be strategic about that. And so with Jesus, yeah, you had the crowds. You have the whole world. Then you have the crowds that would follow him and listen to him, which numbered up to, you know, 5,000 plus women and children. Then you had, you know, the people he taught and commissioned, which the 72. And then you had his friends who were not numbered among the disciples like Lazarus and, you know, Mary and Martha and others, um, Nicodemus, and and then he had the 12, and then, you know, many would say then he had the three. And so I think given the limited capacities that we have, whether our churches are really large or really, really small, we have to just, I think, as a paradigm of leadership, we have to be strategic. Like, who do we need to pour into? You know, and then how can I view people that I'm not necessarily pouring into as much? How can I still bring the heart of a friend into that situation? Mm-hmm. So 
what I do, um, I try to just let it be the lens through which I see people. So if I'm going to visit somebody in the hospital, if I don't have a relationship with them, in many ways I'm going there as a servant. I'm going there as a servant because I don't have a relationship, but I'm going to go there and I'm going to love them. But I don't want to love them just as a servant. I try to also put on the lens of a friend in that situation. Although the bottom line is, is I, I, I probably won't do everything a friend would do in most of those situations unless mm-hmm. there's relationship that's there, right. that's being built. You know, with a friend, I'll spend the night at the hospital. If they're a really, really deep friend, you know, like I'll, I'll do anything. I'll take care of their kids and run errands for them. I'm not going to do that for everybody. You know, so again, I think that's just being realistic about our capacities and the mm-hmm. the number of people that we can sustain in terms of deep friendship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think what this what this creates is that rather than being <clears throat> here's one leader, here are all the followers. Um, this one person serves everyone else. It, right. it, it forces this church into a community where it's an interconnected web of yep. leaders and followers. And there may be someone leading in one aspect that is not a leader in another aspect. And I don't even mean in sense of like formal roles, uh, but mm-hmm. just in, in taking charge of of something. Um, when you when you build that community, it, it sort of it flattens the hierarchy, first of all. Uh, with, whether you're considering the hierarchy of being, um, you know, authoritarian leader to all followers or servant leader to all followers, uh, it, mm-hmm. it flattens that hierarchy and sort of builds this web of interconnectedness, and that provides everyone in the community, hopefully, with more options and more support and more help, because it's not just you know, one or two people feeling like they have to take care of the needs of everyone, but it's everyone taking care of the needs of everyone. It goes mm-hmm. back to, you know, I think Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens, uh, for this is the, the fulfillment mm-hmm. of the law. Um, but that's, like, it, it, it really is a matter of how do we start to change this paradigm? Because this is a, mm-hmm. this is not how church has been done, uh, traditionally, uh, you will see um, you will see denominations like the Quakers, who do have yeah. a very, very I mean, they call themselves friends, uh, mm-hmm. who, who do kind of that, that's probably the closest model uh, denominationally across the board uh, to friendship leadership across an entire denominational organizational structure. Um, mm-hmm. But it's very hard. It's very hard to to begin to implement. Just because people are com- people are comfortable with what they have now, uh, so even if it's mm-hmm. not working as well as we would like, um, the the buy-in the buy-in that it takes is difficult to get people to. Yeah, and this is a breakdown of our culture. I think I think we're becoming more and more socially isolated, mm-hmm. and people don't understand or they're lacking friendship already. You know, we have a generation that's been raised now to define friendship in terms of social media as their primary definition of what friends are. Mm-hmm. And so there is a lacking. At the same time, I think you have a hard time finding very many people that don't recognize the need for friendship. 
like the people who have all the success in the world and yet take their lives because they have no friends. They might have all the money, they might have the success, but they don't have any people in their lives, you know? And then we watch, I don't know, movies that elevate friendship, like I don't know, Lord of the Rings, and you just see the, the fellowship and the connection. Don't we all wish we had deep and meaningful relationships? And so to shift towards it, I think we have to call out what people already know to be true. And I think what we know to be true is that we need people. That there's nothing in life that will make it richer, more meaningful, or will bring us greater joy than deep, meaningful relationships. It's not going to be toys. It's not going to be recognition. It's not going to be a raise. I mean, these are things people clamor towards, but if they could have all those things and have nothing. Or they could have practically nothing, and if they have deep relationships, they're going to be the happiest person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I don't think many people would argue with that. Not many, a happy person wouldn't probably argue with that. I think people who have deep, um, fulfilling lives, they have it is rooted in people and relationships. So I think we're really, rather than just doing a, you know, trying to convince people of something, we have to call out that which they already know to be true or that which they already long for, you begin to give them the permission to pursue that and to deepen that and develop that, especially in a fragmented culture where we're moving, you know, out of community, we're moving away from our families. Like we, we have to find this. And the one place we could hopefully find it would be in the church. I think this is an opportunity that the church has within our culture to, <clears throat> to show that, you know, we do have a love for one another. This is a place where you can have those kinds of relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to ask a few questions, uh, just very particular to some chapters in the book. Mm -hmm. And we, we kind of we, – we mentioned the term dual relationships a couple of different times so far. And I just want to make sure that the listeners understand what we're talking about um, when, when we say – when we use that term. So how would you, how would you define – a dual relationship, why is it something that is discouraged? What are the dangers and how should we navigate dual relationships? Yeah, um, it's a big question. And my wife, she's a therapist as well as a pastor. And so that's when I, when I personally most often hear the term dual relationship, it is a, an ethic by which psychologists and counselors live by and it basically is to say, I cannot have two relationships with you, a professional relationship and a personal relationship. If I do both of those things, the lines are too blurry and it becomes unethical. And it is a stated ethic that is within psychology, the field of psychology. So when you have psychologists and counselors teaching classes on intro to psychology or pastoral counseling, they teach this ethic. And so they will say in the same way as it is true for a therapist that a pastor cannot have dual relationships. You cannot be a, a pastor and a friend to people in your church. And personally, I reject that teaching and that notion because I see I understand it in the area of counseling and psychology um, because that is a very different situation. There's a lot of... Um, potential litigation that's involved there. But I think that pastors 
if, if they limit themselves to professional relationship only with their congregants, they're not going deep enough. It's not what Jesus did. And in our communities, if we're going to be in community together, we're going to be a part of each other's lives outside of the Sunday morning church environment. Mm-hmm. So we'll see people in community. We will go to school events. We will go to community events. We will rub shoulders with people. We will have people into our homes. We won't be afraid to go into people's homes. But, you know, your counselor's not going to invite you over for dinner um, for good reason. So I just think it's a misplaced ethic. I understand why counselors do it and psychologists, but I think as pastors we have to reject the fear of dual relationships and just realize we're going to have them no matter what. Mm-hmm. I think I think some of the fears pastorally that that comes with developing personal relationships um, with people in your congregation, uh, I think n- number one, there could be a fear of rejection, that the friendship is rejected. And sometimes that can happen uh, because some people don't want to be friends with a pastor. Yeah. Uh, that That's something that I, you know, I'm sure you may have experienced it. I know that I've experienced it as mm-hmm. a pastor where people don't feel like they have the ability to fully be themselves uh, right. around you. As a pastor, how do you, like, it may not even be, like, I've had this experience with people not even in my congregation. Um Right. You know, mi- middle of a social event and they find out that I'm a pastor and their whole demeanor changes completely because mm-hmm. now they feel like they have to present themselves a certain way. Um, as a pastor, how yeah. do you how do you, I guess, make people feel at ease um, with with your role? Yeah, I don't think it'll happen on a Sunday, that's for sure. So it's mostly interacting with those people outside the walls of the church. You know, when people project upon us whatever their biases may be, could be related to their view of what a pastor is or what a Christian is. And those, we cannot um, immediately overcome those biases. Those It will take the building of trust. And that will only happen over time and through relationships. So I don't really see it as our responsibility to get past those things too quickly because every individual, those are deeper for some than others. We just have to keep reaching out to people with authenticity and hopefully show them something different that we all, that we aren't radically different. You know, we're Mm -hmm. not like an unapproachable type of person. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's we have to be looking for those opportunities to be transparent and uh, vulnerable and open, and that only happens through community. Again, you think about Jesus and the disciples. I mean, they they hiked together, they camped together, they ministered together, they cooked food together, they fished together. So there was no pretense there at all. And if we did all those things with people, I think those walls would come down really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so. That's where it is important for us to live life in community, you know, and not be so selective that we're barring congregants from being a part of our community. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to invite them in. Yeah. yeah and so think... some people are resistant to it, but for me, it's like, 
oh, you like to surf? Oh, what's your phone number? Let's go. You want to go surfing? Let's do it. You know, like, mm-hmm. what are we going to do to get past whatever biases they have? Mm-hmm. And so community building opportunities. For me, the things I've discovered that lead to deep friendship are like mission trips, where you're traveling together, retreats, you know, where you're spending extended time together, shared interest kind of groups around hobbies. Um, home groups where you're in homes cooking and eating together, like all of those things are really spiritual things when it comes to changing biases, when it comes to opening up the door for friendship. If you do none of those things, then you're probably not going to develop friendship. Mm-hmm. But if you're willing to do those things, if you're willing to go have coffee with people, like whatever it is that you want to do that's different than being in a church preaching or doing what you define of as ministry – We've got to figure out how to just do life together, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, those biases do exist, and they they are very real. And there's many people that do not want to know their pastor, and that's you know those aren't the people I'm after either. You know, I'll I'll do my best, yeah. but I'm not going to obsess over them. I'm looking for people who long for community that I feel like I also want to pour into and invest in, mm-hmm. but they've got to be open to that. Right. Yeah. So the the opposite side of this would be the fear, and I think this is more from the congregation standpoint of, well, the pastor has favorites. Um, mm-hmm. Is is there a sense in your ministry that you feel like I have to be the same amount of friends with every single person, or how do you? Because because you're because you're going to feel more connected to a certain contingent you know either a certain group within the congregation because of those shared interests age socioeconomics whatever you know whatever your Mm -hmm. subset is um you're going to find yourself more connected to that group how do you handle making sure that everyone feels like i'm that that their needs are being met and that there's not just like well the pastor has their own clique that they're a part of Mm. um yeah, I think it's I think having social awareness is really important on the part of the pastor. Um in in not everyone in the church is that socially aware either. I think about like on a Sunday morning there's some people who will come and take all the pastor's time every Sunday morning mm-hmm. and won't even notice the fact that there may be several hundred people who would like to maybe have a conversation, but they just don't see it. Um, and so, but some people are like, I get it. This person, there's a thousand people here or whatever it is. Like there's hundreds of people here. The pastor's not going to be able to be my best friend. You know, like some people have social awareness. Some people lack it. Um, and so I think for a, a pastor, it's to model without creating a click, but, hey, you know, these are, this is one of my friends. This is one of my friends. You know, you have a limited capacity to have those deep friendships uh, and to be okay with that. Playing favorites in a negative way, that's, to me, that, that it can be um, toxic if it means being extremely biased or letting it influence things in a professional environment where you're not investing in people equally, where you're maybe uh, not looking at what people's gifts are or abilities are. I mean, that definitely can happen. But that's where, again, 
healthy versus toxic friendships, healthy versus toxic leadership, you know, emotional intelligence or a lack of emotional intelligence, all those things come into play. And so we're obviously not, we're all far from perfect. We're all very, you know, we all have our areas of brokenness. And so, but I do think that's why the, the health of a leader is really important when it comes to their mental health, emotional health, spiritual health. It helps us be a little less blind to our, you know, to our, our pathological <laughs> tendencies, wherever those might lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the third fear, and th- this, is, this is probably the most prevalent in the literature, uh, is that, that almost any time that you're talking about a past nurse personal relationships, um, a lot of the literature focuses on when a relationship can become inappropriate. And specifically with um, all, the, all of the inst- instances of sexual abuse in the church and in a culture that is so, so highly sexualized where so many pastors have taken advantage of their power, um, how can pastors develop godly opposite gender relationships, uh, opposite gender friendships that are, you know, understood and, and seen for the friendship that it is? Yeah, I think that's where a lot of caution is needed. I would agree with that because then we are a very highly sexualized um, culture, but out of fear, uh, many people have withdrawn so much, so completely, mm-hmm. that I, I don't think that's the answer. Um, we can't be driven by fear, but we also want to be safe. My favorite verse that's been my guiding principle is First Timothy 5, um, verse 2, or 1 and 2. It says, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with absolute purity and I mean, if we could have that, like, really embedded in our thinking mm-hmm. to really see people that way um, and then to be a safe person. I mean, we are women, men and women are looking for safe people. They're really looking for safe people. And if we could truly be a safe person, then um, it's going to be good. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be transformational. But we don't hear much about that, do we? <laughs> but yeah. Is it yeah. asking too much, though, for that? Like, is it asking too much? So there has to be accountability. There has to be, like, let's be smart about this. Mm-hmm. You know, I have plenty of women on our staff, plenty of women that have been in our homes, even as interns, even as, you know, but we have to be accountable with our time. We have to be public. We have to have good marriages that we're modeling should never be exclusive. If a pastor is married, my wife better be just as involved with those women as I am. You know, probably more involved. And so I just think we have withdrawn and we've become worse. Like some women are terrified of men because of what they've been taught or what they've experienced. Other men are terrified of themselves because they lack self-control. Um, but let's just try to figure out if we can be a person who will do what the scripture says, treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. 
And, you know, again, I think in the book we talk about, um, op- we talk about just attraction in general, because now it's like, it could be same sex attraction as much as right. yeah. opposite, you know, it's just, it's all of the above. It's just being pure. Mm-hmm. And so, but does that mean I will never do anything with a person one-on-one? No, it doesn't. I'll still do things with people one-on-one. But we have to be wise, be cautious, be accountable. Yeah. I don't think there's a simple formula for it. Yeah, it's very. I think it's very contextual to almost to the individual person and the individual relationship as to what is appropriate for that relationship yeah. and the, the the context that you're in for, for everything. Uh, oh, so just just to round things out. Um, We've sort of established that, that friendship leadership is this paradigm for leadership. Um, you can sort of set it within servant leadership in the sense that like friendship should mm-hmm. be added to this servant. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's not that servant leadership is is bad. It's that it's it, it's incomplete um, in in this mature form of leadership and relationship and friendship, um, but not. Not a lot has been written about it. Um, mm-hmm. What what do you think the future holds for friendship leadership as a theory or paradigm of leadership? Yeah, it's a big dream, but I wish it would become a known term in leadership circles. Like if we could just talk more about friendship leadership, if it could be a known paradigm of leadership as much as servant leadership, then I think um, – we would have made some progress. As long as we only do servant leadership, we're going to be missing out on the component of care, compassion, love, and deep relationship. And how do we love one another without those things? How do we really fulfill the law of Christ if we're unwilling to go towards friendship leadership? So that's my goal. That's my hope that it would become a known term, a known um, leadership model that people are pursuing and that's elevated and understood because right now in terms of where the church is at today without that term even being recognizable i think we're really missing out on something that's super important and very timely yeah i mean whether we're talking about millennials who are longing for more deeper deeper relationships or you know subsequent generations there's just this is this is an opportunity it's a deep need and it's a biblical mandate Mm-hmm. And we've talked a lot about this from the pastoral side, um, just because that's where that's both of our context. Uh, but really, this is you, you can implement this in any level of of leadership, wherever wherever yeah. it might be. Um, so it has value. It's not it's not just a church thing, um, but it's a it's a way in which we could revolutionize the way leadership is thought of, you know, throughout. And it would be a big change. Well, well, Matt, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to be on the podcast. Uh, for those of you listening, again, the book is Friendship Leadership, um, published by, by uh, Whiff and Stock a couple of years ago, 20, 2018. So it's about, right, yeah. three, three years old? Yeah, three um, years old, yeah. So it's uh, it's been out there for a little bit, but um, pick it up. Just just, just give, it, give it a chance. Read it because there's, there's nothing in the book – that you would look at and say, oh, this is, you know, you wouldn't think that it's revolutionary, but it's because 
we we just don't apply it. I I I really reading through the book, there was no points where I thought, oh, this has never been done before. No one has ever thought of this before. We just seem to not apply this to the realm of of leadership, and it yeah. really does have it really does have the ability to revolutionize the way that we lead. Uh, the way that we follow, hmm. the way that we engage as a community, whether that's a church community, a business community, a social uh, community, whatever whatever the case might be. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you, Josh, so much. I really appreciate your book review. I really appreciate this podcast. And uh, it just was so exciting to me to see that you really um, understood what this book was all about, and I agree, it will definitely revolutionize the way we do leadership if we will take this on and um, see it for what it is. So thank you.